Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Amy Goodman, lecturer in mathematics at Baylor University. An early advocate of online teaching at Baylor, Professor Goodman is currently chair of Baylor's Teaching, Learning, and Technology Committee. She is currently finishing her PhD in learning technologies at the University of North Texas. She was also a recent recipient of a teaching exploration grant for a project investigating technologies, enabling online math students to more easily show their work. We are delighted to have Professor Goodman on to discuss creativity in online teaching. Amy Goodman, thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me. You are completing a, a doctoral degree in teaching and technology or something related to that. I wonder if you could tell us about that, what you're researching and, and what you're learning in the midst of that work. Um, well, that's a great question. The degree plan is called Learning Technologies. It's a PhD program at the University of North Texas. Um, it's primarily about um, how we teach and learn with technology, but within that umbrella, you can kind of take it in many different directions depending upon your field. Some people are um, in business and they're there to learn about corporate training. Some people are like me or in higher ed, and we're looking to facilitate uh, our teaching and student learning with technology. And then some people are like instructional designers, and so they may be doing it for a school district or for another university. Um, but all things happen within within that umbrella. Obviously, I'm interested in the higher ed track on that. And uh, so my, my degree plan has consisted mainly of um, learning theories and instructional design and data analytics. So what has been your main research area in the midst of this? Well, I find myself drifting more and more into data analytics. I uh, took a class this semester where we had just had to do a research project and uh, it was big data, so you have to learn how to program in R and do some uh, data analysis. And I've, I found that really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm just that geek who ended up doing 100 pages of coding for my final project and was just loving it, you know, because, you know, every new iteration, you're like, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So you can, you can kind of get sucked in. In fact, I was telling my professor about it. I was like, you know, I don't know if you wanted quite so much exploratory data analysis on this project, but I just kept going because... I, you know, and he said, yeah, there's no end to this type of research. You really have to set limits for yourself because it, it's easy to just keep going down the rabbit hole. Right. I imagine it's both exciting and perhaps a bit disoriented to be working on a, a doctoral degree while you are a faculty and have been a faculty member for quite some time. So what has that experience been like for you professionally and, and perhaps personally too? Well, it has, I mean, I have enjoyed every single minute. I think the fact that I've, this is my 22nd year at Baylor. So the fact that I've been teaching for a couple of decades uh, gave me a really strong foundation and what I already know how to do and what I already know how to do well. And that, I, I mean, after a couple of decades though, I, I feel like I really reached my frontier. Like I'm, this is as much as I know how to do with what I have. 
So when I went into this program, I, I knew a lot about what I was looking to do. And then I found a lot of things I didn't even know that I didn't know. Um, I didn't realize until I studied uh, learning theory, you know, what an objectivist I was as a teacher and that, you know, that I was such a cognitivist and behaviorist where in, in my heart, I think I, I, I lean more toward constructivism as learning theory and, and helping people make sense together of what they're learning. And that's one of the ways I learn best, but it's not the way that I was taught mathematics and it's not the way that I had been teaching mathematics. And then, I mean, you know, you kind of have that awakening where you're like, well, well, why not? Why, why can't we do, but it, it's not, it's not something that would have naturally occurred to me if I hadn't been forced to study these things and think, you know, what, how do I relate to this? Do I like it? Do I not like it? Does this fit with my style? Does this fit with my discipline? And so it, it's helped me bring a lot of new practices into my teaching, which I, I, I love the connection between what I am learning and that I can directly implement that into something that's useful in my profession. I think if I had learned these things before I was teaching or if I'd taken a break from teaching to go off and do it, it wouldn't have been as complete of an experience. I love how you kind of frame it in almost in terms of like congruence, like what is what what do I actually believe deep down in my soul about right. teaching and learning versus what what am I what am I doing? What am I actually doing? Right. Yeah. How is how is that aligning? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it kind of helped hold a mirror up and say, you know, is this is how it's always been for you, but is that the way that it needs to always be? And I, you know, when confronted with a question like that, the answer is no, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, and in fact, if I got to just design it exactly the way I would want it, that's not what I would do. Right. Well, so what in your, what, what in your learning in your doctoral program has, has perhaps directly affected your teaching? Have you tried any new things? Have you redesigned <laughs> any major assignments, anything like that? Well, oh, absolutely. I mean, some of it came directly out of my teaching. Um, I mean, some, some out of my some of my teaching was directly, directly, and like day one affected by the classes that I've taken in my research. I mean, from the learning theories that I already mentioned to just instructional design. I mean, there's the theory of instructional design, and then there's actually implementing it. So it helped me be, I mean, almost immediately much more deliberate about how I structure my classes, particularly in Canvas. And then I've, I've been teaching online since 2017. So thinking very deliberately about how I'm crafting the way I'm ha- and inviting students to interact with my content and my class about the way I'm structuring it. And then, I mean, even into learning analytics, but more um, kind of at the end of an instructional design cycle, thinking about uh, how I'm evaluating what I've done and not just my own personal evaluation, but the way that I invite feedback from my students, the way I implement the feedback from my students. In the past, I feel like I have always read every single course evaluation that my students have ever filled out, but I've used that to help inform me about how can I do what I'm doing better or more effectively. And I hadn't really ever gone the next step to say, well, how could it inform me about doing something else? Yeah. Try, you know, not doing what I'm doing, but breaking away from that and, and, and trying something new. So yes, it has definitely helped me um, generate new ideas, tackle new uh, avenues. And of course, COVID just pushes all that even further down the road. So there have been many new things that as a result of COVID, I have had to implement in my face-to-face hybrid online classes that I have never done in teaching before, but I would say that absolutely, you know, since I've been in this program since 2018, I had so many more resources to think about how I would make that transition or how I would implement or try new things as I'm having to work more in an online environment. I think it's so interesting that in in higher education, we have generally speaking this 
this great thing that we call academic freedom and applies not only to our research, but to our teaching as well. And yet so often we kind of remain in those self-imposed boxes of right. this is how this discipline or this subject matter is always taught. And, right. and you never think about going beyond it. Because it just doesn't occur to you. That's not, you know, I was never taught that way. I've never had any, anything modeled for me in my discipline like that before. And, and yet when I reflect on it, you know, just lecturing and, and taking notes and then going home and consuming it did not always work for me as a student. You know, that was, I, in fact, you know, when I was in, in my master's program, the way I learned best was in a study group with three other people, you know, standing in front of a dry erase board and just saying, you know, where do we go from here and brainstorming. And that's not the experience we were getting in a classroom, but you know, why, why could it not be the experience that we have in a classroom? It requires structuring uh, class time differently. It, it requires structuring content delivery differently but I mean, it's very doable. One of the things that we often tell faculty when we're working with them is that when you try new things in your class, you have to be prepared and willing for students not to love the new things and to, to sometimes resist the new things. So do you have any, any stories of that? Hmm, to not, to, to have students resist the new thing. Um, I have not had that experience I mean, on, on any real scale, uh, you, I mean, always, you can never please all the people all the time. So there's no matter what you're doing, it, it's going to, you know, really delight some people and it's going to not delight others. Um, and it, I tend to really troubleshoot things. I try to before I implement them so that I can anticipate as many questions, as many hiccups as possible, and then help prepare my students. When you come to this moment, if this happens to you, here's what you do so that they don't experience that much frustration with it. I guess last spring when we had to switch to remote instruction, you know, very suddenly after, when we didn't come back from spring break, all of my calculus students had to go from turning in handwritten homework every week to submitting homework in an online platform every single week. That transition was initially rough because that program was very notation specific. If they did all of the calculus right, but they didn't close a parenthesis or they didn't separate their answers by a comma, or they didn't use the union symbol between sets in interval notation, it would count it wrong, which was very frustrating for them and, and frustrating for me as a, as a professor to troubleshoot. Like this is feedback I could have given you directly if we were you know, right here in the moment, but doing it virtually you know, from email to email or discussion board post to discussion board post, it's taking longer, it's becoming more frustrating. Uh, but going through something like that once because you had to helps you when you later on choose to implement that think about how you're going to communicate about, about that in advance to your students so that they understand what to expect going in and 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 ways that they can moderate that for themselves without having to have all the frustration you mentioned discussion board posts and that's something here at baylor we use canvas as our learning management system uh, i i wonder what what are you, what are your thoughts about the the technology tools that go beyond the lms uh do you have much experience with these kinds of add-on things or uh, add i mean there are I'm, I'm going to say infinite and then that's a bad use for of a math person's language but there are many different applications that are add-ons beyond canvas and all of them have a place in a certain class or a certain discipline um, for myself as terms of technologies beyond canvas many of them are just normal technology tools that a person could use in, in any other phase I, I was thinking about um, technologies that have really made a difference in my online teaching and going back to even 2012 when I was just doing like 
um, online uh, office hours or something that wasn't necessarily a class, but I got I got a mouse uh, pad where I, with a stylus so that I could actually write. And now there's a learning curve for this because you don't see what you're writing on. You just see it on the screen, but your hand is writing on the mouse. But I mean, that's a simple technology that, I mean, really this was able to facilitate communicating about mathematics in a virtual environment. Of course, now I've got a, a touch screen with a stylus that I'm able to use and, and you know pack up and take with me everywhere I go. So those types of tools are not necessarily LMS related, but dramatically help what you're doing online. But there are some things like also, I mean, being at Baylor, we have technologies that integrate with Canvas, but I mean, one of the, not, not even the newest ones, but one of the most helpful ones is Kaltura, just being able to do all your own video capturing and things. I mean, before you had that ability and, and other schools use Camtasia and there, there are many platforms, but before we had that ability to capture our own lectures and videos and things, we were reliant on, trying to cobble things together from outside resources online to embed them and then implement them and then direct students outside of your class or outside of your box to go look for other resources that were related to what you were teaching and learning in your class. And now you're able to just create that content for yourself. I think there's a lot, many of the apps out there give educators more control over what they're doing in their class instead of being dependent on what has been made by others other places. So I think all of that is good and, and helping uniquely craft your own experience for your students. One of the things that sort of boggles my mind about teaching with technology in an intentional way and online teaching is that it's still so new and and the the, the landscape is changing so so rapidly all the time. So I don't even know how you begin to sort of like study such a thing that is, you know, in motion in the way that online instruction is right now. Like you know, we're, we're talking over Zoom and, you know, how many people even knew what Zoom was a year ago, but now everyone's just kind of like, it's just integrated into our lives. So that's, it's kind of a philosophical question. How do you, how do you get your arms around something that, that changes so quickly? Well, online teaching is new to, I mean, most people at Baylor teaching in higher ed. It's not really that new to the rest of the world, although within within any discipline, you know, the way people are doing that is different from place to place. But I mean, online teaching has been happening since the late 90s. So there has been research out there. There are best practices that have evolved over the past couple of decades. So there, there is a body of research and information out there to tap into to get an idea. Um, I mean, but as you know, with any practical application, you can only read about how to ride a bike so long before you actually have to sit on a bike and move the pedals. Or, you know, someone can only explain to you how to, how to swim for so long before you finally just have to get in the pool. So it's kind of that way with online teaching. You know, you can read about best practices and that's super helpful. I mean, to help you structure even your first experience, but at some point you just have to dive in and, and give it a shot. And I think the first time you do anything, it's never going to be exactly the way you always hoped it would be. And I think for instructors, it just requires a tremendous amount of humility and flexibility, you know, to, to say to your students, you know, we're all trying to do something new or for the first time. And so, you know, give me your feedback, you know, try to not be frustrated. I'm here to help you, you know, let's just hold each other's hands and do the best we can in conversation with each other about this. And so, my experience has been that students are excited to get to be part of the process. And, and if you can just admit it from the beginning, 
this may not be ideal, but we're going to try it out. You know, tell me what your thoughts are that, it, that that's not such so rigidly tied to their grade and going to affect the rest of their lives. Then, I mean, they're, they're very willing to participate. Flower Darby in her book, uh, Small Teaching Online. I don't know if you if you know that, but um, it's it's kind of become a a handbook, especially in the in the COVID era of of people trying to switch to remote teaching, which is not exactly the same in all cases as fully and truly online teaching. But she she suggests in there that online te- if if you believe that online teaching is going to be a part of your uh, of your teaching career going forward that you really need to take an online course you need to be a student and in the online uh, sphere so that you can have that perspective of what students are going through I totally agree uh, I mean just having I mean so I, I taught online before I had enrolled in my degree program which by the way is 100% online I uh, we have one meeting yearly that we are required to attend to fulfill I think some state accreditation residential requirement but other but all of my classes by and large are 100% online all the time so I was teaching online before I had ever taken an online class and definitely having to consume information from the other end is extremely informing about how you're delivering it as the instructor and I mean all of my, I have had nothing but great instructors and great experiences in my degree program, but inevitably along the way, you're going to find something that is the way you really want it to never have to be for your students. So you learn a lot about things that, you know, about what not to do for yourself. I mean, I had one student, I mean, one professor that was just really heavily tied to files in Canvas and happily they have the same uh, platform at UNT that we have at Baylor. They also use Canvas but to just continue to put things in files that are not necessarily organized by week or by even alphabet, you know, can be frustrating for students that are having to scroll through and find what the resource is for this week. And so it, it works, but it's not, it's not the way you wish it were. So learning, learning how, how other people are structuring things so that you can take the good and learn what not to do. So, you know, kind of take that out as you go forward is, is only helpful for yourself and your own instructional design. A couple of years ago, the ATL did a short uh, uh, essay series called To Teach in, in sort of recognition of our 10th anniversary here at the ATL. And Greg Garrett from the English department wrote a, a fantastic essay about seeing, seeing the learning process from the students' perspectives. And he said that when he was in seminary, and he went to seminary late uh, in, in his, in his, uh, later in his life, that he had a, a preaching professor say that one of the things that he does is he goes and sits in the pews before he prepares his sermon. So to just, you know, just even in kind of a metaphorical way of like thinking about how is this person who I know always sits right here in this corner pew right here, how are they going to hear the words I'm going to say? So it all, like so many things, it comes down to empathy, doesn't it? I 100% empathy. And that has been never been more important than in a pandemic that you know we're able to empathize empathize with our students uh, i would say in my own teaching i have tended at, over the last 20 years to generally be pretty rigid about due dates and i i mean i have always published the entire semester on the first day so you can see every due date that's coming you, you know what's due when it's due and you can always work ahead but i don't accept late work 
And, you know, there are times when there just are exceptional circumstances and, you know, just human to human, you have to accommodate that. I mean, so there is a certain amount of accountability that's required. There's a certain amount of rigidity that's appropriate. And then there's a certain amount of empathy that just has to be part of the experience. I mean, that particularly when you're 100% online and everything is dependent on the technology working and able for you to be able to participate completely. I mean, hiccups happen. So uh, you, we just have to give each other some grace. Yeah. So what do you think are students' main challenges when they are learning online? Well, and it, when you're not in a pandemic, and well, and even in, within, but I think just generally as when students find themselves enrolled in an online class or even an, an entirely online schedule, I, I think that it's a pretty, I mean, from my own experience, but I think that it, it's a pretty obvious answer is that time management can be a challenge for them, particularly if, they, if they're earlier in their college career. Just transitioning from high school to college is a big adjustment for any student. Going from the rigid, you know, eight-ish to three-ish school day where bells are ringing and sending you on your path and you're not allowed to leave the campus, you know, and you just go through that structure every single day to transition to a regular college campus where bells are not ringing and nobody is directing you from class to class to class, and you could actually choose not to go. And of course, we all hope students don't make those choices, but there's, a, there's more freedom in that first semester freshman experience than they've ever had academically up to that point. And then if you put them in a, in a completely online environment, now there's even less structure. So I, I think learning to manage their time, um, imposing the self-discipline upon themselves to stay focused, to, to have a schedule, to you know, work ahead, to stay on the path. It, it, it just requires a practice that, that they have to, to, to make themselves do the things that, that maybe they are not in the mood to do right then, but need to get done anyway. So, uh, and then in addition to just the self-discipline of, of creating a schedule, I think with an online student can by and large feel much more isolated than a student in a face-to-face -face class. And even when professors have said, these are the resources for when you have questions, it requires initiative on their part to, to seek out those resources, to make that post on the discussion board, to initiate an email. And whereas if you were in a classroom, some of those conversations happen much more organically, where you know you can just catch the professor before class or after class, and it seems very informal, very conversational. Or students, you know, come to class early, and while you're sitting around waiting, somebody says, "Hey, did anybody get number 35?" And then that's just a very organic conversation in the room. Whereas you know now you've got to make a point of exposing your ignorance of number 35 to the entire community of people, which can be intimidating for some students. And I mean, and. My, I have been very successful in my discussion boards, in my opinion. I, I think my students use them very regularly and fluently. And, and I force them in, a, in the first week to do an assignment where they have to post so that at least they can get the rhythm of it. But I think overcoming all of that can be challenging for students in an online environment. Those are challenges they wouldn't necessarily have to be faced with in a face-to-face -face class. Yeah, you went exactly where I was going to go with that because you were talking about structure and then I was thinking, uh, I, I need to officially coin this term that's been <laughs> battering around in my head, which is parastructure. So you've got, you know, you've got your class times and all that, that is, is you know, you're walking across campus, you enter the building, uh, and that's the structure of the students, you know, face-to-face um, uh, -face learning experience. But then you have all of those things that kind of come along with that structure, like the, like the five minutes before class, you, you just turn turn to a neighbor and say i didn't get number 35 like you just right. said or or that kind of sense that a lot of classes develop like 
when they just know that there's enough of my colleagues who who don't know when the next assignments do then it then it, it just comes up naturally mm -hmm. and the professor addresses it but in that isolation of online learning you don't know if you're the only one who just is confused about something right and and that's as a as a professor it's important to be aware of that from the very beginning and help students feel non-anxious about participating as a community. And in fact, I, uh, I really encourage my students to, to not, the discussion board is not just unidirectional. It's not you post and then, you know, and wait to receive an answer, but answer each other, you know, work in community and make it a giant study group. And I, so far I've been pretty successful in cultivating that environment in my classes. Of course, not every student is going to participate all the time, but there are enough students having enough conversation that it's a healthy chatter. You know, it's that hum that you enjoy hearing when you walk into a normal face-to-face -face cl classroom, but instead in an online environment. And really there, there are some freedoms and advantages that come with that that's apart from a face-to-face -face classroom, which is that happens 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that people have that as an access, uh, have access to that information, to that network for, of each other. Whereas, you know, you might have that question about number 35, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 9.05, but any other time, then you know, those people are not available to you that that conversation is not there whereas you know the people online are always there that you know everybody gets an update a ping on their phone when somebody posts on the discussion board so it's a it, there is an element of being even more connected it's just a different way about thinking about being connected and it's a way that most students in a traditional you know high school experience have not had in their in their learning background so helping them find ways to be connected is really important so you mentioned doing a an assignment early where they have to dive into that discussion board. Are there other ways that you have found to be really helpful, even if it's just sort of rhetorically how you're setting up what the discussion board is for? Oh, sure. Uh, well, and it's not just my discussion boards. It's really any way that I ask them to interact with the environment. The whole first, if it's a summer school, it's the first couple of days. If it's a, you know, a 15 week semester, then it's within the first week. I have a, a series of, of many different online adventures for them to go on in the very first window of time, whether it's um, going through the cycle of posting on a discussion board, going through the cycle of accessing online resources like a homework uh, center or quizzes, or even I have a, I've put a fake exam on there at first so they learn how to set up their lockdown browser. They learn what the, the rhythm and the routine of that is. I use the same directions on every exam. So here, the, here this is what it, you're gonna see when you log in. This is what it's gonna say. This is the order of the steps that they're going to happen. So insofar as it is possible to pre-arm students with this information, it, it is makes it less disarming for them later. If they, when they get to that, it's not unfamiliar. It's not unexpected. There's a lot less anxiety. And particularly you find that around exam time when students are not only worried about the information, but just, you know, I don't want to be accused of online cheating. So I, I need to make sure that everything is done correctly. Or what if I didn't do everything correctly? I, I super didn't cheat, but now, you know, is did that come through the video? Was it communicated? You know, am I, I, I don't want to get kicked out of school, you know, so there's, there's enough anxiety just built up in everything being new that I try to take the sting of that away as early as possible. So let's just work through the way everything's gonna be. So when the time comes, you're not surprised. And that I have to say that paid off for me this fall. Yesterday, I gave an exam in my calculus class and it was the first time that everything had had to be online. So for, uh, I had a hybrid class where we had been meeting 
uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and for our exams and, you know, the three exams previous to that, we'd gone through the process of submitting online, of how we would do that when it was all virtual so that when we came to the end of the semester and they had to do it uh, all online, that there wouldn't be a super shock. And I was nervous for them and I sat with my outlook open and waited for, you know, trouble shooting, you know, to have to occur. And I had, I had one student that had one technical glitch and everybody else did beautifully. And in fact, I was nervous. I thought, but they're, they're just submitting their exams. Like it's just happening. Like, are they okay? I haven't really heard from anybody. And, and, and they, you know, they'd had a fake exam they'd had to practice on. And I, you know, you give them a couple of bonus points on an assignment for having done that. So that you try to incentivize they're doing things as early as possible so that when the time comes, it's easy. And so far that seems like it's working out. So I'm, I'm happy for them that it's, that it is an easy transition from a hybrid to solely online that I, that I, I'm happy that they are having a good experience with that. Well, you touch, that's a very specific example, but you touch on, I think a larger issue for, from the teacher's perspective in online teaching. And it depends on how, what, what the balance of synchronous and asynchronous is. But I think one of the things that teaching online teachers have to get used to is maybe not being able to see their students sort of working in the moment on something. They can't look over their shoulder in the same kind of way that they, that, that they would in a face-to-face -face class. And the assignments just sort of show up and the exam just sort of gets submitted right. and it's it's just sort of this uh, mystical thing that happens on the other end of the computer. Well, I, you're, you're right about that. I mean, particularly for somebody who's used to being in the classroom for decades and looking at and just reading the room, just seeing their faces, their body language, you know, seeing their level of engagement, that is hugely informative for you in the moment when you're in the middle of teaching class. Like if they're not getting it, then we're gonna, we need to just have a, a minute to say, you know, I, I'm looking at your faces and I feel like this is not working for you. You know, where, where did we get off the bus? Like where, where have I lost you in this process? And you can have that just like gut check moment there, you know, and they can say, yep. I'm so glad you asked, like, why did you do step three? And you're like, oh, great. Mm -hmm. And then you, that, that, exactly. that conversation happens right then. Whereas in an online moment, you know, if it's crickets, you don't, you don't know if it's because everything is so seamless and beautiful that they're all having the most Zen online experience ever, or because everybody is completely lost that, you know, they just don't, they don't even know what they don't know and they don't know how to ask. And so that, that requires some initiative as the instructor to, to go to your own discussion board and post and say, I have, you know, this assignment's due tomorrow and no one's asked a question. Are you all, is, are you just skating through this or are you lost? Give me some feedback. Where are you? And you'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't, it depends on how often you, I was surprised at, at first when you put, when you throw something like that out there, the avalanche of response that you get, because it's either, you know, I was nervous about it, but you know, you did example three on the 5.1 notes and that really helped clear up everything I had a question about on the homework. Thanks for providing that extra resource. Or they say, yeah, we don't know. We, you know, we, we don't know what's going on. You know, how do you do something like number seven? We can't even get past that to get further on into the assignment. And so just as the instructor initiating those conversations and, and soliciting the feedback. So, I mean, it's another example of, you know, you, you having to assert yourself on whether you're on, you know, on one end of the online class or the other, we all have to, go out of our way to check in and 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 be part of the community together it won't surprise you that one of the constant refrains that we have at the atl is 
uh, feedback, student feedback, yes. get us, get student feedback and then act, act on that student feedback. Don't, don't just rely on the end of the course, end of the semester course evaluations that doesn't do any good for those students in that, in that class. Right. It might, it might help if you're intentional, it might help for the next class, but it doesn't, doesn't do anything for them in that, in that moment. And so, of course, you know, we have different ways of saying, okay, well, maybe, maybe integrate a mid-semester feedback form or after, after or with every unit exam or something like that. But what you're talking about really, I think, goes to the next level, which is to integrate a, a, a conversation that is, that is also feedback in the moment, too. I, yeah, I mean, I, to me, the, I, I need, as the instructor, I need to know where they are right then. And you're exactly right about not waiting for those end of course evaluations, because whatever feedback you get from that is not helping the students that you've been talking to for the last 15 weeks. You may find out what they wish they'd had help on or what they wish they had known, but you can't go back in time and give them those resources then. So it, it will help you moving forward, but it doesn't help the last 15 weeks worth of, you know, batch of students. Um, but so not only do I go to the discussion board sometimes and kind of give them a nudge if I feel like we just have not been talking lately, uh, but I mean, through my PhD classes, I learned how to create my own instruments and I, at Baylor, I learned how to use Qualtrics. And so I create my own surveys and I, I send them out there. If they can give me a 90% or better response rate, then I'll give them two, a two point bonus on an exam. You know, so I, I initiate my own feedback loop. Like I can't wait until the end of the semester to find out how this is working for you. Please tell me now and I'll pay you two points on your next exam <laughs> if you'll just give me feedback right now. So, I mean, as instructors, we have a lot of ways that we can solicit uh, feedback from our students. And it it is, in my opinion, always most helpful right then in the moment. Like what can we do right now that's going to be beneficial? And, and, and sometimes the answer may be nothing. Like everything is going great, but usually there's something that we can do, that we can tweak, that we can refine, that we a resource that we can add that can help students right then. That is the reason why you have not heard from them lately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So final question I'd like to ask you is something, is there something that you'd like to try with online teaching that you just haven't, haven't done yet? Well, um, if you'd asked me this a year ago, I probably would have had a list with COVID. <laughs> I've had to try so many <laughs> new things with online that I've never tried before. Uh, but what I was thinking about, about this type of question, and one of the things that I've done this semester that I think I would like to take even further is I, I, I teach two classes that are about, um, that are math education. It's helping uh, Baylor students who are one day going to teach elementary school and middle school. And many of them may teach elementary and middle school math. And the class is about how to break down math concepts and explain them to somebody who's never heard this before, who doesn't already know how to do all of these things. And up until this semester, the assessments I've always had for those classes have been written exams, just <laughs> the way I always had them myself. And when I was thinking about how that would translate to a hybrid class, to an online class, I thought, you know, I, I don't feel that it really translates that well to online. So what could an alternate assessment path be for me? And so for those two classes this fall, I let them do group projects. And I have to say, that has been such a good experience rather than giving a written exam where they pair it back to me the methods and techniques then strategies that we've discussed over the semester actually having them take that next evaluative step 
that, you know, to analyze what they've learned and think about how they would implement it, I think has not just been uh, affirming for me, but it's been such a good thought exercise for them. Like, how would I actually do this in a classroom? And to watch their evolution in that process over the course of the semester, I just finished grading their third round of projects. I mean, when they, when they first started off, they, so many good ideas, but obviously very raw. Just thinking about how to communicate those the mathematical ideas was awkward, was not familiar to them. Um, and then now by the end of the semester, they're so much more fluent. The, 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 their, their thinking is so much more structured about how they would get into a lesson, how they would break it down and how they would tie that into you know the, the point, like the mathematical concept we were just discussing, like how they bring the whole lesson together from beginning to end, the types of examples they would want to discuss with their class, the, the strategies they would use to break that down and help communicate it. I, I have really enjoyed that experience as an educator this fall, watching them have to think about how they would actually use what we've done in this class. And what I would like to, if I could take it even further, is, is even give them more freedom of expression in that. So instead of having to sit in a room and write an exam for me, I'm still asking them to essentially write a report. Now it's a report about a lesson that they are designing. And so there, there's some freedom of thought in that on their own part, of, you know, to create their own learning experience for their students, their imagined students. But uh, if I could broaden that to them so that they were able to express those ideas um, in, in a video or a, you know an audio format, even an animation, just any way that they would choose to express that idea, I would like to open that to them. Although as I think about doing that, I'm like that, that could be such a creative opportunity for some of these students. But as, as the instructor of the class, I'm not sure how I could communicate to them you know, how much freedom they have and what they would do with it. Sometimes, you know, students like, so, you know, if you could just give me the lines that I could paint between those, you know, just anywhere in there. So if you give them unlimited freedom, it can be difficult to help them understand exactly what the assignment is. So I'm not sure how I will structure that for the spring semester, but it is something I would like to broaden and give them more opportunities for. That's great. Yeah, it is hard to find. I don't know if it's if it's looking for a sweet spot or if it's just looking for the right amount of flexibility uh, for students, because you're right, some some really flourish when they have the options. Yeah. And we know from motivation research that if they have some sense of autonomy, that's going to help. But then you can cross that line where it's like the menu is too big. Right. And I don't and I don't want to order at the Cheesecake Factory anymore because <laughs> the menu is too big. It stresses me out. <laughs> Right. <laughs> All right. Well, we are we are just hitting our time here. So, Amy Goodman, I want to thank you for joining us for this conversation today. Thank you for being a champion for online learning here at Baylor and for just great teaching at Baylor. Too. Oh, so well, we thank you, Christopher. Thank you for having me. This has been a fun conversation. Our thanks again to Amy Goodman for speaking with us today. In our show notes, you'll see Greg Garrett's essay on thinking about the lives of our students, as well as a link to Flower Darby's Small Teaching Online, which Baylor instructors have free e-access to. We have also posted several videos of pointers for online teaching that Professor Goodman has produced for Baylor instructors. That's our show. Join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy. 